0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am James Cohn. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flix. And we are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And we are not talking about horror films this episode. We're banning it after three in a row. Yeah.
2: Watched a lot of horror movies in October.
1: Oddly enough, though, the movies we did pick today, you could planned several Halloween costumes around.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, that's true. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> still
1: bright and colorful characters and things to dress up as. We're just not doing horror strictly. But before we get into what we're talking about today, uh, what have you been watching lately? Well, I went to the movies.
2: I ran <laughs> into you at the movies. <laughs> I know it was funny. That was the first movie I've been to in a
1: while. Months. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I saw Killing of a Sacred Deer. The new Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah, who is one of my favorite directors
1: it was kind of funny i was leaving the florida project for a second time and then ran into you going to see that one i wanted to see that it
2: was a toss-up between that but i i liked it It, his movies always kind of i have to process them and think about it for a few days after so i don't know if i fully wrap my mind around the film as a whole but i definitely dug it's like pitch black humor mixed with like just terrifying ambiance there were definitely moments in there that I think stand up to some of his best work, but I don't know if I'd quite put it up there with, like, Dogtooth,
1: but I still really enjoyed it. You saw it as well, didn't Yeah, I you? went back the next night to watch it. I liked it, but kind of the same reaction I had to The Lobster. I, like, appreciated it more than I, like, had any fun with the humor. He has such, like, a dry, ironic that's detachment.
2: dialogue definitely but takes a, a little getting used to.
1: I really like fake dialogue when it feels like a stage play like i think mother is a good example of that Mm -hmm. but this feels more like short fiction which i don't really know how to qualify or quantify that difference but it's very like blunt and there's like a lot of monologues and characters just sort of say these socially unacceptable things in this like dry way without any emotion at all and it's supposed to be funny how like emotionless these like big statements are and you're watching these characters react to a supernatural scenario the same way that you are in The Lobster. Uh, and this one is a little more violent, I think.
2: The Lobster definitely pushed the comedy aspect more, especially in the first half of that one. This one, I would
1: definitely classify as more of a horror movie. I like think it's, it's a like... dark comedy, too. I think you're supposed to laugh. Basically, I don't want to ruin like the, the main plot no, point because no, no. it comes very late in the film. But the same way The Lobster is anxious about like modern dating this one is anxious about like fatherhood and being a patriarch of a family so you have this like surgeon uh and his like wife and children become suddenly ill for like supernatural reasons and the movie finds a lot of dark humor in their ailments progressively getting worse and he does nothing about it and you're supposed to find his inaction like both very frustrating and like darkly funny i think
2: yeah and I, i think it's also kind of a was a statement on like medicine in general like thinking that we can play god and what happens when that goes wrong and that goes to him kind of being inept at taking care of his own family and that I don't there were like definitely layers of like biblical mythology put in there and like greek tragedies as well like there's definitely some depth to it that warrants like you know further viewings or really thinking about it but at least a lot of the people I saw it with, kind of came away from it sort of cold. I felt very cold. Which I think is the point, but I get why people don't want to experience that when they go out to the movies. Yeah.
1: It's also like a clinical setting in this case too. It's like mostly in a hospital and these like bedrooms that have sort of been converted in like makeshift hospital rooms.
2: Yeah. One thing I do want to really give it credit for was I thought the score was fantastic, especially towards the end, just some really eerie, loud... There's this sound. one
1: moment where someone takes a bite out of their own arm and the most hideous sound you've ever heard on a soundtrack like takes over. Right, I this, like, like put sharp... my
2: hands up to my ears. It was so sharp and high pitched.
1: Yeah, we're like used to seeing worse gore on screen, but the combination of the image and the sound together was really gross. Yeah, th- and I think that mixed with also there's a lot of
2: like reminded me of Stanley Kubrick, especially in, like The Shining. Just these beautiful shots of just long hallways and from that aspect i thought there was a
1: lot to admire yeah like kubrick and like dead ringers the Cronenberg movie but i think both of those movies are funnier than this one the biggest laugh i got out of this movie besides just like the absurdity of the scenario was uh, nicole kidman like watering her plants at night like there's mm-hmm. something like amusingly sinister about her just like doing her gardening in the middle of the night with this like blank expression on her face but the rest of the movie was funny in that like intelligent like reading the new yorker kind of way where you're like, huh, that's that's clever. That's a weird thing to happen." Right, not it's not laugh out loud. Yeah. funny. It's more cerebral. But
2: anyway, I I think if you've seen his other movies and you're down with his style, mm-hmm. this is still in that same vein and I enjoyed it. But again, if you've seen Dogtooth or The Alps or any of his other films and didn't like it and came away from it, like, kind of cold, then I don't see why this would change your opinion of him.
1: Yeah, it's about where I'm at. It mostly confirmed things I already knew about how I was reacting to his work, so... Yeah,
2: I think I'm just so, like, into his style. I think it's really exciting and different, and I don't know anyone that's tonally hitting those same points that I'll continue following him.
1: I think it's worth to go see them in the theater as well, because... You have to hold your attention to it. The images are a little starker, uh, and the score like is all around you, so it's hard to like get away from the sound of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, what,
2: have you seen anything of note recently?
1: I have a couple hangovers from like the last couple days of Halloween that we didn't get to talk about in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I did watch Ana Lily Amapour's follow-up to A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Her second movie is called The Bad Batch. Have you heard of that one? No, but I, I saw Girl Walks Alone
2: at Night and I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, this one has a much brighter color palette. Like, that one is like this Jim Jarmusch, like black and white kind of indie looking movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is bright bubblegum pop colors, like people wearing these, like, happy face print things that are like bright banana yellow and like speedos and neon lights and all this stuff Uh, and it has the same like really cool eye that she brought to A Girl Walks Home and it's also a violent horror film the way that one kind of is where like there's a couple instances of violence but mostly you're watching this girl navigate this like horror film scenario and you mostly like hang out in the bedroom with her or like her moments of solitude as she like avoids all these different violent scenarios or enacts them herself And unfortunately, in this one, it just did not work for me nearly as well. And I don't think there are many people who would defend this movie, which is really sad, because when you look at it, it should be, like, super fun. Uh, It's a cannibal movie set in the high desert in this, like, prison colony. There's basically these two communities. One is all these cannibal scavengers, and the other is this, like, rave kingdom that Keanu Reeves is running, like a harem. Oh, Uh, that sounds awesome. It sounds so fun. Right. And uh, Jason Momoa plays this... Well, first of all, he plays a Cuban man, which is very strange, because that's, like, not his, like, ethnicity at all. Um, <laughs> and he plays this, like, muscle-bound artist, there's like, a sensitive brute. Uh, Jim Carrey plays this mute uh, scavenger who just, like, looks like a hobo who, like, just collects things in the desert. <laughs> Keanu Reeves is dressed like Tony Clifton, you know, like the Annie Kaufman character. And all this stuff sounds, like, wacky, you know? Like, it sounds like a wacky good time. But she stretches it out to this, like, two-hour slow-crawl art movie instead of it being, like, a fun, bright, poppy horror film. And it just lays there. Like, nothing happens. And it's just so boring. Sounds like
2: there was a lot of potential there,
1: too. I think you could re-edit the same movie into something interesting. And I wouldn't even bring it up just to shit on it if I didn't think anything of value was there. But it's, it's so weird to watch it and think like, why am I not having fun watching this? Like, why is this a drag? Right,
2: like everything you were describing sounds like a great time.
1: Yeah, I mean, the soundtrack has like D Antword and uh, Ace of Bass and Culture Club on it. Like, it sounds like hmm. such a fun movie as you're like thinking about it. But in the act of watching it, it's just so pretentious against its own good. Like, it's just such a serious art film when it should be, like, an 80-minute, bright, violent horror comedy, pretty much. I think that I will be in the bag for whatever she makes next. Like, I'm going to keep watching, because I think she has a really interesting eye. Mm -hmm. But if you happen to see that one on Netflix, it's really not worth the two hours of your life. Like, you could probably do better. But the better one I saw at the end of the Halloween stretch was Super Dark Times, which I definitely want you to watch. It's a new movie... And it's one of those, like, kids-on-bikes throwbacks. But instead of being set in the 80s, it's set in the 90s. And these two high school kids are bored out of their minds in this, like, Midwest suburb. They just, like, eat junk food and, like, watch scrambled porn together and, like, (laughs) ogle girls in their class. And are just kind of gross. You know, like, teenagers are, like, always grosser in real life than they are in movies. Like, if you watch something like It or something, you're looking at, like, an idealized version of Kids or, like, Stranger Things... This one is, like, teenagers for how they are. They are these, like, grotesque, oversexed, like, frustrated monsters. And the way the movie escalates is there is an accident where one of them kills someone else by accident. And it's this really violent scene, and they cover it up. Hmm. And the movie has this mounting paranoia of getting caught, of one of them sort of, like, enjoying the death a little more than they should, Not hmm. everyone not being on the same page... And at the same time, the main kid, his crush starts, like, hitting on him uh, at the exact same time that this happens. So he has all these, like, stress dreams about the accidental death and the sex uh, that he, like, wishes he was having and, like, the woods where the accident happens. And it just all sort of mounts in this weird tension that's never been supernatural but it starts to feel surreal because the stress dreams start to uh, invade his paranoia what that's I think that, you would like it a sounds, lot yeah that sounds totally up my alley I want to check that out we watched that one Halloween night and it was a good like come down because it's not strictly like a you know slasher type horror film or anything it's more like a kids on bike th- thriller that sort of hints at all these like supernatural type stories okay. but keeps it like grounded in reality is that something that's out in the theaters, or is that a Netflix? no? I think it went straight to VOD, so it's probably like a three to five dollar rental on whatever platform you usually rent. I'll watch on. it. That yeah. sounds really good. Well, today we're going to be talking about stuff from the '90s as well. A this bit is of nostalgia here for me, at least. This is like a only '90s kids will understand, like Buzzfeed list type episode, <laughs> which I don't even oh, yeah. know was entirely intentional. But we're going to be talking about a bunch of movies starring Shaq, which should be yep. hilarious. Uh, and before we get into that, we're going to talk. A reboot of a very beloved 90s franchise that's been dormant for like 20 years. And all that's coming up to
0: you, right now! You need to follow the three rules to being a Power Ranger. You must never use your powers for personal gain. You must never escalate a fight
2: unless your enemy forces you to. And you must never reveal your identity. Ever.
0: To assume your Ranger identities, you need to morph. Have any of you morphed before? Yes. They're only in the (laughs) shower. Okay, okay, let's step
1: into the footprints, please. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, It was my turn to pick this time, and I made James watch a movie I saw in the theater this year that I absolutely went apeshit for after expecting, like, nothing special out of it. This is the 2017 reboot of the Power Rangers franchise, which has sort of been on television, on and off since we were little kids, but uh, hasn't been in a movie theater since 1995 when Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was released. See, I saw that one in the theaters. Me too. Really? <laughs> yeah. I I wish I would have saw this one in the theaters, so. though. This one is a very different take than the original. The first one is in that 90s sweet spot where like everything was about ooze, Uh, I think Mm -hmm. the uh, villain's name was Ivan Ooze. Ivan Ooze, yeah. And it had, like, a very quick, like, Ninja Turtles movie-inspired, like, superhero narrative to it. The 2017 Power Rangers reboot is a little closer to the Stranger Things-type thing, where it's, like, a spooky 80s throwback a little bit. Um, It reminds me of, like, Flight of the Navigator or The Explorers, the Joe Dante movie, uh, mixed with The Breakfast Club. Uh, You Mm -hmm. have this group of high school students who are serving Saturday detention together, and they're all of different social, racial backgrounds, and they are pretty much complete strangers until they end up in a quarry one night uh, at the old abandoned gold mine that happens to be in town, and they find five power gems from outer space. And they get in a train accident, and all seemingly die in a van together, except they wake up the next day with superpowers, and aren't really sure what to do with these new abilities. And it isn't until the last 30 minutes of the film that you see Power Rangers, people in these, like, Japanese superhero costumes fighting a giant kaiju creature created by Rita Repulsa, who's the vi- villain in the original series, which I think the original series was a Japanese show that was then redubbed in English right. with, like, American actors filling in the segments where the kids weren't in the suits. This one saves all of that nostalgia for the original show until the last half hour. Um, You get, like, an exact 10-second snippet of the original theme song, and then the movie switches from that theme song to Power by Kanye West. I think that's kind of the vibe the movie goes for. Like, it doesn't really bank on original Power Rangers nostalgia. It tries to, like, edge it up until a new, like, 2010s persona, so the kids, like, who have never heard of the original show would enjoy it, while still, like playing the the breakfast club, Fly the Navigator-style nostalgia for, like, the older crowd so that people can sort of meet in the middle. James, what did you think of the approach, first off, of just, like, holding back, of seeing these kids in the suits and, like, watching them become a team first before you get that superhero payoff in the last half hour?
2: See, I get that that's better storytelling, right? Like, that's something I appreciate about it was they actually tried to give depth to these characters and they each sort of have their own like family problems or personal problems and they really like go into detail about what those are and they come together as a team and so on the one hand it's like yes that is better to have fleshed out characters but on the other hand it's like I also want to see shit get blown up and for me I wish it would have had a little bit more of what came in the last 30 minutes but that's like a minor thing like in a way it sort of works delaying it until the very last moment cuz you're you want it so bad for them <laughs> finally to like morph and work together as a team like i will say the last 30 minutes are like exhilarating and super fun and actually like i think the performances are really good can i just say
1: that i cried in the theater watching this several times <laughs> did you <laughs> yeah
2: during what part i mean there's a few parts that kind
1: of tug at your heart mostly strength. like the home life stuff like uh the yellow ranger is like Hiding her sexuality from her parents. Right. Who, like, are, like, trying to, like, get her to talk about her day and stuff. Well, and she, like, clams up about that.
2: That was one thing I, I thought was interesting, too, is, like, the original, it was a diverse mixture in the sense that they were all, like, different races.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then to kind of update it for the modern era, they actually add in some, like, sexuality
1: yeah. issues, but... And, like, online bullying and all that kind of stuff. I also cried... Especially when the Black Ranger goes home and is, like, taking care of his, like, invalid mother who's, like, housebound with illness. Like, there's just something very touching about these kids who, like, act, like, tough, I don't care, I'm a daredevil type, like, badasses out in the real world. And then they go home and have these, like, sort of tender, broken home lives. I think that
2: kind of leads to one thing I noticed about it. As you're watching it, it feels very tonally inconsistent. Love it. Like, right. And no, no, and I, like, I get that you would like yeah. that. But for me, it just, like, it was so jarring sometimes. You go from those tender, heartfelt moments to a scene or two later, you have some, like, silly joke. Yeah. And it's like, do we take it seriously? Are we not supposed to take it seriously? Well, the first, the
1: first like, three scenes you see are just in a row. It starts with, like, aliens in the Cenozoic era, uh, with um, what's his face from Breaking Bad Brian Cranston is like this like space alien who's like falling to death while the world's burning around him and then you immediately jump to like a high school prank where kids are like stealing a mascot and there's like a really prolonged joke about jerking off a bull at the mm-hmm. top of the movie and like bull semen uh, and then that goes to an action sequence where like a car rolls over and it's actually like really technically well shot uh, from inside the car there's like this 360 oh, that was very camera cool. and then you go from that To these, like, home life dramas. And then, like, back to, like, jerking off jokes. And, like, it's, like you said, it is all over the place. But
2: but I do think, like, that makes sense. Because, like you were talking about in the introduction, it's kind of trying to toe a weird line. It's not ironically nostalgic in any way. Like, it seems to actually revere the source material while also trying to update it for a modern audience. But the original show was so campy. That when you're trying to make that sort of thing serious, it just doesn't
1: quite pan out, I think. One of the weird things about this movie is that they planned, like, five sequels ahead of time. They're like, oh, this is going to be a franchise, and it just really didn't take off the way they wanted
2: it to. But I don't know like, how they could have made it successful if they would have gone too much in the camp direction. Modern audiences would have been disappointed because you want that character development. You want an actual story. But if you go too much in the serious
1: direction, then it's kind of a drag. And I, I think it loses the essence of the original show. There are like three things that are like solidly camp in this movie. There's like the Power Rangers theme song. they like, go, go, Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. They only played that for like 10 seconds. But that moment is like pure... Like, fist-pumping, like, this is hilarious camp. And then there's Rita Repulsa, played by Elizabeth Banks, who is, like, obsessed with gold. And it's actually kind of a creepy creature design. And she, like, rips gold out of people's mouths and, like, steals jewels. I saw
2: all the the costumes Mm -hmm. and the action scenes and the CGI were all Yeah, it's well done.
1: done. Um, But she is kind of doing, like, a drag routine, like, over-the-top. Uh, performative femininity and like just sort of like chewing scenery because she's the villain in a Power Rangers movie. It's needed and she does the role very well. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is that as emotional as I got about this movie, it is a two hour long Krispy Kreme commercial. I I don't
2: know how I feel about that. Like the blatant marketing of it. I don't know. I guess it's par for the course, but it was just... You know, other movies have had product placements, but this one felt so blatant and they in do your it,
1: face. they do it on purpose, too. They're, like, winking at you. Like, she's, like, holding one of the kids up and is like, tell me where this, like, whatever the fuck MacGuffin the, she has to get.
2: The crystal or something. Who gives
1: a shit? But she's holding the kid up. She's like, tell me where it is, this thing I need to enact my evil plan. And he's like, it's at the Krispy Kreme. And she pauses for a second. She's like, the Krispy Kreme, this must be a very special place. And it's like, oh, yes, it's very special indeed. I, I kind of cringed. I love that. it so much. But I
2: did like it when she shows up and there's the scene of her eating a donut. donut.
1: I don't know. Like She's just casually eating a donut in this kind of like, like I said, this drag queen kind of way. Like very performatively eating a donut. And the whole- Krispy Kreme is just crumbling around her and the world outside is like falling apart. A uh, very great moment, <laughs> but I have like a very specific reason why I like that, and it's something I've been fascinated with lately. Uh, Monster trucks is a good example of this from early this year too. Mm-hmm. I've been really fascinated with movies where it's such a blatantly commercial object from the get go. I think like Mac and Me is a good example, or like the Super Mario Brothers movie. Right. That just the absurdity of putting it on the screen sort of leads to these like really weird. Areas And it's even more fascinating when the movie fails and, like, the commercialism is just, like, completely not bought into. I think movies always are kind of, like, a this is not a new idea by any stretch. Like, people say this all the time. But it's, like, a balance between art and commerce. Like, it has to make money so that people can make more movies the next year. And I think these movies that are, like, more blatantly honest about the fact that they're selling a product are, like, really fascinating. Especially when they become, like, much weirder and more memorable than, like artistically pure movies that we watch on like a regular basis like most like regular three-star non-campy movies i watch in a year that might be like technically more artistically pure than this crispy cream commercial that i love so much i'm not going to remember in a year but this like over-the-top superhero origin story that's trying to sell me donuts like i find that fucking fascinating it's funny too because like a lot of
2: times when a product placement is done like that it sort of fits with whatever the characters or the plot but donuts and mighty Morphin power rangers like if it would have been an energy drink or you know sprite i guess i could understand but it's fucking donuts and mighty Morphin and power Ra- like it just doesn't click with me i it's funny too you brought up that they wanted to do so many sequels like obviously this was a they thought it was going to be a big cash.
1: I'm not grab. even sure they broke even. It, it must have been pretty close, but yeah.
2: But I wonder, in a way, if like audiences were like kind of turned off by it and sort of the over commercialization kind of undermined any opportunity for it to have like sequels. I don't in the know future. if people
1: even gave it a chance. Like, I, I just don't think that people like showed up for it, which is interesting. Which might go to like why they didn't lean into more to like the original show's nostalgia. I mean, they do have like Zordon and. Rita and Brian Cranston plays Zordon the robot I think his name's like Alpha 5 is played by uh I, Bill Hader
2: I will say that was the one like character CGI that just didn't work it didn't fit for me like it just wasn't aesthetically like pleasing or well done it was just kind of weird like but Bill Hader's a likable character oh yeah like, no the yeah. like voice acting and all I'm saying the actual design of that character yeah, it didn't of- really fit in the world I don't think One other minor, I guess, criticism is some of the music for me, I get that they were adding in this like more modern pop music, but sometimes that shit just did not work. Like there's a part where there's a really slowed down version of Stand By Me. I don't even remember that. You don't remember where they're trying to take take him to Zardoz so he can bring him back to life and it's very slow and (laughs) I'm just like, oh, this is awful. And then there's like stuff that sounds like I don't know, like Fleet Foxes and like (laughs) that kind of indie folk
1: thing. I'm like, and then you have Kanye West. Like that was awesome. And then you have the Yellow Ranger doing Tai Chi to like death metal at the edge of the cliff.
2: Yeah. Like the music was all over the place and sometimes it it worked. But man, there was a few moments where I was like, God, I wish it was just some generic like synth soundtrack. Then like trying to
1: continuously add in these pop songs. That kind of points to, like, what I like about the movie is that it's so excessive. These different pieces that really shouldn't fit together are all sort of, like, jumbled. Like, the fact that you can have these, like, tender, at-home moments of, like, domestic, like, trauma mixed with, like, jokes about shoving tons of crayons up your ass. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just find that, like, juxtaposition really funny. I've seen so many superhero movies in the past few years, as everyone has. Like, these, like, Marvel and DC kind of movies Not that they're not enjoyable, but you get in this sort of like routine where you know what to expect from them. This is one of my favorite superhero movies I've seen in a while, just because it's so odd and unexpected on a minute-to-minute basis.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Overall, I think it was a tough spot to be in for the filmmakers. Like, It's hard to please both the crowd that wants the nostalgia and the campiness, but also the people that want a serious superhero movie. And I thought, given that context, they did extremely well it still has its flaws but i'm not a huge superhero movie person to be honest yeah you don't
1: really go to the theater to see the latest marvel film or whatever no like i'll, I'll check them out eventually but there's a new Taiko watiti movie in the theater right now we didn't go see it opening week because it's thor ragnarok like
2: <laughs> right I don't, i'm
1: not really
2: into that but this was it was really fun I I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would.
1: I didn't cry during it. Yeah, no, that was kind <laughs> I didn't of ridiculous. Love it that
2: much, but I could see where that could come from.
1: It caught uh, me off guard. I was watching it by myself, like I was in a very receptive place, you know. Yeah, I watched it a second time recently, and I still recognized where those emotional beats were. I didn't have quite the same reaction to it, but
2: yeah, no, I I'm totally on
1: board with. It. I wish they would have made more honestly i think they were kind of banking on like china sales helping and i don't think it did so this might be the beginning and the end and even with that i think it just being its own weird self and this like self-contained work sort of feels right it's charming like yeah this is a weird thing that happened and i think even with time it'll just become even stranger that this was ever the krispy kreme commercial that made me cry in public
3: (laughs)
0: Man, cuz I'm the Sultan of Sam. Is that it? Is that the whole deal? You wanna be a hit? You better get real. I did have this friend in the thousand BC. We discover a bevy of bathing beauties. Her bird looks to me and I says to he, Why don't we jump in that old Euphrates? So that's the whole story. That's all you gotta tell? You got to listen to my rap from bell to bell.
1: wasn't enough, like, 90s kids attitude for one episode. Uh, We're also going to be looking over the career of Shaquille O'Neal, also known as Shaq, and (laughs) also known as, like, a ton of other nicknames, like Shaq-Fu, the Big Cactus, the Big Shactus, the Big Agave, and, like, 20 other things I'm not going to read off this piece of paper. The Big
3: Shactus?
1: Where is that from? Oh, he holds up his arms. He holds
3: up his arms when he defends. (laughs) He's also known as the Big Aristotle.
1: Yeah, that was one... Joining us for this conversation is our friend Julia Broussard. Hi. And Julia is the biggest Shack fan I know. She's our <laughs> Shack expert. Um, I'm so
3: happy to hold that title.
1: What is your like? relationship with Shaq.
3: Sure. So I grew up in the Baton Rouge area. um, And for as long as I can remember, my family has had season tickets to LSU basketball. And so when I was a a kid in the late 80s, early 90s, Shaq was a player on LSU's team. And one of my earliest memories of LSU basketball is watching Shaq dunk so hard that the goal broke and they had to like stop the game for I don't know, it felt like forever. It may have only been like 10 minutes to go somewhere in the depths of the stadium, get a new goal and put that in place. So Shaq was like a mythical figure when I was a kid. One time we went to go get our car repaired and the mechanic was like, hey, Shaq was in here recently and got new speakers. Do you want this piece from his old speakers? And my brother and I were like, "Yes," and that became a cherished possession. Oh my god! Um, I promise I'm not stalking Shack, but um, I do have empty cans of soda Shack in my office at work right now. Yeah,
1: that's one of like his many brands, right? Because he's like soda. Yeah. He has tea. He has a podcast that I listened to a couple episodes this week called.
3: He has a podcast. It's
1: called The Big Podcast with Shack. <laughs> um, and even if he wasn't like a mythical figure in your like childhood, he's also just like seven one and like over 300 pounds he is he's a monster of a man <laughs> um and has been his whole career and it seems like that's mostly where his like basketball prowess comes from it's just the fact that he's this gigantic monster
3: yeah this is kind of a debate in the basketball world about how talented is Shaq actually um he definitely can play basketball I'll leave I it d- at that um,
2: <laughs> I don't know man. he's very quick at least he was you know early in his career yeah he's like a great defender I don't know he's got power I, I think he's one of the one of the greats like you can't just say because of his physical
1: attributes like that's the only reason and he's been a pretty impressive genius as far as just like extending his career like uh one of his most famous controversies I think was when he like left LSU early to join the NBA. Which ended up being like a really like good move for him, and he had a very long career on multiple teams, multiple championships. Uh, he has like the podcast. Uh, he has four rap albums, four, which aren't wow. some they, aren't bad. They're not that bad, <laughs> seriously. And it's not that he's, like, a specifically, like, great rapper, but he works with, like, people... Good producers. Like, A Tribe Called Quest and, like, Wu-Tang Clan, like, respectable people, maybe more so in the 90s than now. But, you know, he also had like, two reality shows. He has, like, public feuds with Charles Barkley that he always, like, plays for, like, humor and keeps himself in the headlines with that. He's
3: just... He's become a deputy of several police stations or police departments. I think, like, Miami, somewhere in North Carolina... He apparently has gotten a PhD, or maybe it's an EdD, a doctorate, nonetheless, through an online university.
1: <laughs> he mentioned on the big, the big podcast with Shaq that he uh, has several degrees. Like he holds that
3: fact like, pretty high. Also,
2: up. just from what I know, growing up in this area is like he does a lot for just the community especially in, like, Baton Rouge, but also, like, New Orleans, uh, West Bank. He just, like, seems like a really good dude. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's where a lot of my love comes from. Like, it was definitely fun watching him play at LSU and following his NBA career, but he also just seems like a genuinely fun and nice person. Yeah. One time I had a dream that Shaq and I were at a beach house together, and we were, like, coming back after I don't know what we were doing – And someone had left crab shells everywhere, and he, like, lifted me up and was like, someone made a mess in here. Let me carry you over these crab (laughs) shells. And I woke up the next day, and I was like, you know, Real Shaq might do that, too. He would have done that. Totally.
1: (laughs) And we're going to be talking about a couple kids' movies today, and I feel like befriending someone who could take care of you that way just because they're so big is, like, probably a good part of his appeal. Also, he was... Recently involved in the WWE, which is something what? that I was uh, <laughs> which my I totally <laughs> forgot that he was in the Royal Rumble. Yeah, he was at WrestleMania like a year and a half ago, and completely oh, right. slipped
2: Not the Rumble, okay.
1: Well, yeah, it was like the big Andre Royal Rumble match at WrestleMania, God, yeah. and he like kind of squares off against Big Show, and they were like teasing a. Uh, because Big Show is, like, a man equal to his stature. is another Ooh. gigantic person. Uh, and they kind of square off and tease, like, a feud that never actually came to anything. Probably because Shaq got bored and, like, didn't want to do any WWE stuff after a minute. But, um, yeah, the man is around. You will see him endorsing things. You will see him hosting late-night TV shows and just doing all kinds of things that have nothing to do with basketball. Just because he's, like, an affable, lovable person. The first movie, though, in his very short-lived career as like a feature player in films, was Blue Chips. Very early in his career, right after he switched to the NBA from college basketball. Uh, And it's a movie about college basketball, directed by William Friedkin in 1994. So this is two years into him playing for the Orlando Magic. This is a movie that's more or less about a Bobby Knight type. And Bobby Knight stars in the movie, not stars, Bobby Knight cameos in the movie as himself, Uh, to sort of like give that nair of authenticity along with some other college basketball coaches from the 90s. Nick Nolte stars as the Bobby Knight archetype. He's this hothead coach for a college team who likes to run a clean program, which means that he does not participate in point shaving and he will not bribe players to come to his team to like stack up the talent the way that his competitors will because it is against the league rules. And all of this is to say that eventually he goes back on his own principles and recruits Shaq along with Penny Hardaway and one other player uh, to play on his college basketball team against the rules, wins a game because he broke the rules, and then feels bad about it. And that's pretty much the whole trajectory of the movie. We recently did a top five Friedkin episode where we counted down the director's best movies. This was nowhere near the top, (laughs) like not even close, but it is a pretty okay sports movie. How do y'all feel about Blue Chips? Like, What's your relationship with it?
3: so this was one that i grew up watching as a kid i think partially because me and my brother were like yeah Shaq, basketball i remember it being fairly entertaining as a kid and that's kind of my take on it as an adult too it wasn't a bad movie but it Mm -hmm. also didn't really enthrall me
2: yeah i think sports movies are hard like it's really hard to shoot a basketball game and make it more exciting than actually just watching the basketball game live. So I think that's a big yeah. struggle in the movie is Freakin's trying to create this like energy by having like real players and a lot of up close shots with like the actual basketball, but it doesn't quite lead to like the enthralling feeling you should, like, watching a sports movie. That
1: seems like the moments when he gets most excited. Like, when he's playing with the games. Yeah. Like he'll show the countdown clock on the edge of the screen, kind of like you're watching a television broadcast. Or he'll slow everything down to like, really terrible, psychedelic music <laughs> to, like, sort of give you the feeling of, like, the game going the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like you're watching The Doors, the uh, Oliver Stone movie, <laughs> for, for a quick second. But mostly it is played pretty straightforward, except with these, like... Network the movie type monologues where like Nick Nolte just sort of goes off and like tells the truth uh, directly to the camera. I think that the movie's
2: strong point really is Nick Nolte's performance. He's yeah. good. He's really good. And I honestly, speaking of Shaq, I wanted more Shaq. It's this, 40 is, minutes before you see Shaq in this movie. And he is one of the best characters. The fact that he doesn't want to accept the bribe and he's actually like super intelligent guy that's playing dumb. Like, there was a lot of interesting stuff they could have done with this character, and they don't. He just has a few scenes that are some of the most memorable scenes in the movie, and he just kind of hangs around. I don't know. They
1: could have used him better, I think. His character name is Neon Bodeau. He is from Algiers, Louisiana, which this movie would have you believe is like a third world country, but is literally just across the river from where we're sitting right
3: now. No, they had to take a shrimp boat there and go through like jungle like conditions <laughs> what was that? before. I've been
1: to the West.
2: Bank. They got it's not to that a, bad. a
3: row of dilapidated shotguns. Yeah, and the,
1: the houses look like something in the Ninth Ward or something. Like, yeah. It looks like Algiers Point. It's not yeah. any remote location. I thought it was mo- like they could have just shot in like Haiti or yeah. something. <laughs> like, that's what it felt like. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of a joke, I guess, on the name Algiers. Like like they kind of like, It's like yeah, a mis, maybe uh, that's misdirection. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny that he is one of the most charismatic parts of the movie. Um, there's a scene where Nick Nolte takes him to get a tutor. It's like his ex-wife is teaching this like kindergarten class and it's one of the most fascinating exchanges in the film just because you have this giant man playing with these children and like holding them up and smiling and doing this like kind of Bugs Bunny routine where he's like, ain't I a stinker? And it's like, wow, this movie is kind of charming all of a sudden. Well, and also
2: the scene where he's in a class and he like questions uh, the professor or whatever. Like I really liked that too. Like every scene he's in is good and
1: charming I just wish there was more of it. And the movie plays on the perception that he's a stupid man, which is something that people joke about a lot, because he has a kind of a slow, deep voice. But this makes it seem more like he's just kind of cynical and, like, biding his time and seeing what people estimate him as before he, like, speaks on it. I love
2: he keeps saying how the tests are, like, culturally biased and so, so he knows, like, what's going
1: on. Would you say this is one of his best performances, even if it's not the movie that features him most? I would, yeah.
3: I agree with that.
1: That's how I felt. And I also felt like, if you look at William Freakin directing like movies like The Exorcist or Bug or something, if you ever watch behind-the-scenes stuff of him walking around on set, it looks so fucking weird, because he's like <laughs> this middle-aged like midwesterner, and he wears these like wireframe glasses, kind of like the aviators I'm wearing right now, and like these like old man sweaters, and he just looks like he doesn't fit on the sets of the movies where he's filming, this looks like the kind of movie you would assume William freaking makes by looking at him. Like, it's like a pretty good sports movie about Midwest college basketball. It's got a lot of moralizing,
2: like, ethical dilemmas going on, which is a little heavy-handed at times. Yeah. Especially with that J.T. Walsh character. What's his name? Happy? The one that's Heifel
3: like... or something like that, yeah. Yeah, he's
2: like the scumbag that's, like, bribing... Yeah, yeah. Everything else felt so grounded in reality, and his character just felt...
3: And then he shows up with two large-breasted ladies on the arm. <laughs> yeah,
2: that felt a little over the top yeah. and
1: not didn't really fit with the rest of but the But Happy movie. has a pretty good point early on when he says that we owe these kids money. Like, we're making all this right. money off these kids, and they're not allowed to accept bribes or like any kind of compensation for it. We're getting rich off their backs. Yeah, it's like we only do the
2: capitalist thing with the owners... Not with the actual players. I mean, that is the like central dilemma, and it is an interesting one that's kind of still relevant. And it's one that plagues
1: LSU pretty regularly.
2: Yes,
3: so that's what I was going to say. It's actually interesting that Shaq made this film because he played basketball for Dale Brown, who coached basketball from uh, at least the 70s when my dad was a student at LSU up through 90s or early 2000s. Um, So he's really like synonymous with LSU basketball. Shaq apparently had an extremely close relationship with him. There's like an ESPN 30 or 60 minute documentary Mm -hmm. you can watch about the Shaq and Dale Brown love fest. Um, And Dale Brown was a really vocal critic of the NCAA and the way they treated players. He was really advocating that they should have more rights, that universities and the NCAA make a lot of money off of them. And during Dale Brown's time, there were a couple scandals with allegations that players were being paid, including uh, in Baton Rouge, where I grew up, Lester Earl is like this dirty word, um, because he's this guy who played for LSU for, I think, a season, transferred to Kansas, and then after he was in, I think, Kansas told the NCAA that he had been paid off by an LSU coach, and Hmm. they investigated. It turns out he was given, I think, like $5,000 by a booster, never paid. None of the coaches had any knowledge of it or knew anything. And recently, like just two or three years ago, Lester Earl came out and said, the NCAA really put pressure on me to rat Dale Brown out. Basically, this was a hit job against Dale Brown.
1: It's a pretty small amount of money, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, 5000 And like, I
3: may be off on the figure, but it was not anything like, you know, he got enough to buy a nice car or a house for his mom or anything like that. I mean, why were like they that. going
2: after him if he seems like an upstanding guy, like someone just had it out?
3: Because he's such a vocal critic of the NCAA. Or that's the conspiracy theory. Yeah. None of this is uh, <laughs> proven, but... <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs>
1: And another, like, good meta context of the movie, too, is that Penny Hardaway was sort of, like, scouted by Shaq on the uh, (laughs) set of this film. Just playing ball with Hardaway on the set, Shaq convinced Orlando Magic to pick him up. And they became, like, a pretty good duo on the court after the
2: fact. They did. I think it's interesting, too, with the... I forget the character's name, but he's basically, like, a Larry Bird kind of character, like...
1: The farm boy?
3: The farm boy.
2: He's in... French lick which is exactly where Larry Bird came from. And then
1: Larry Bird appears in the movie as Larry Bird. Larry
2: Bird right before meeting the character based off of him, like there was a lot of Which is the same thing as the Bobby Knight appearing in the movie. The
3: Bobby Knight thing got really meta because I didn't realize until after I watched the film that Nick Nolte had studied Bobby Knight Mm -hmm. for this performance, but like, immediately as I was watching it, I was like, wow, he's sweating Bobby Knight really hard. Like, yeah. he's got the sweater and the shirt and the anger issues. <laughs> I
1: honestly don't watch a lot of college sports at all. Um, and even I knew when I saw Bobby <laughs> Knight on the screen, I was like, that's Bobby Knight. He's like a pretty recognizable figure.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the thing that's most interesting about the movie is just its blending of reality and this fictional story and the meta context. Did you ever go to LSU?
3: I did! I got my master's degree there. Another another shack fact. My master's is in social work from LSU, and the parking lot where I would park every day that was closest to the social work building is right behind the Pete Maravich Assembly Center, where LSU plays. And midway through my... Two-year master's program, LSU erected a life-size statue of Shaq dunking and breaking the gold. Wow. And so every day on my way to class, I got to walk past that. And on graduation day, we took a photo of me in front of that statue in my cap and gown. What? Yes. (laughs) Commemorating two great moments in my life.
1: James and I both met at LSU at, in the dorms, and then we dropped out together at the same time <laughs> and moved to New Orleans <laughs> and right. finished here. Um, so not quite as, as a success story as that. I don't even think we made it to see that statue get erected. I know. Now I want to go see it. I don't know if I've ever seen it in person.
2: It's yeah. a
3: pretty sweet statue, I have to say.
1: Speaking of sweetness, this next movie is The Sweet Spot. This is like the whole reason to ever do a podcast about Shaq movies is to talk about this 1996 gem, Kazam, in which Shaquille O'Neal plays a rapping genie, discovered in a boombox by a small child played by Frank Capra, who later went on to play Weevil on Veronica Mars. Shaq is in his element here. He is doing his full Bugs Bunny routine with, like, the laws of physics completely thrown out the window so that he can just do whatever he wants at any moment, except that he has to fulfill three wishes for this small white boy in New York City. I saw this movie in the theater with my dad and my brother, and I was enraptured with it and when the movie was over, at the credits, I looked over to them to, like, share in the joy of what we all just watched together. And the two of them had been dead asleep for what appeared to be a very long time. Aww. <laughs> and it was, like, the earliest memory I've ever had of thinking to myself, like, wow, I have terrible taste. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie is very special to me. I'm sure y'all have similar experiences of watching it as a kid. Um, How did it hold up as an adult? It definitely holds up. It's, like,
2: wacky and weird, and there's rapping, and there's cheesy special effects and there actually is like a heart to the movie. Like I think it definitely held up pretty well for me.
3: Yeah, same. I loved this movie as a kid. I bought it on DVD when I was in college and revisit it periodically for fun. Um, I still find it really enjoyable.
1: And I should say it is like streaming on Hulu right now. So if you haven't experienced the magic of Kazam in a while, it's on there. Uh, But if Blue Chips is the college basketball aspect of Shaq's career on film. This is like his rap career movie. So like if you're interested in like Shaq's mic skills, it happens a lot in this film. It's not the Wu-Tang Tribe Called Quest produced rap albums he made. it's not cool. It's more of like this like slam poetry, like cheesy kids rap stuff. But it is really fun in this like kind of bugs bunny context. But
2: okay, can we talk about the racial aspect like watching it now as like an adult? You have this like white kid who's upper middle class, right? Because you see his mom's apartment, but he's dressed in like rags and he's dirty and he's into hip hop and he gets his genie who at one point he literally says, I own you. Yeah. So the genie character goes on to start this like rap career where he basically gets exploited by this music producer type. And then the end of the movie, he finally breaks out of his like genie spell and becomes a normal human and the very last scene of the movie is his girlfriend telling him to like get a job there's just like weird racial subtext going on that like i picked up on early in the movie and it just kept reaffirming
1: it's weird because like shaq says to the kid i'm trying to be your friend like it's not like he is trying to fulfill these three wishes so he can get out of the kid's life he wants to like kind of hang around and Honestly, there's an uncomfortable racial aspect to that as well just because, like, the magical black man is such a trope in movies where, like, Mm -hmm. they help improve a white person's life just by hanging around and being wise beyond their years or whatever. But it's kind of sweet that he, like, wants to be this little kid's friend The way that we see him hanging out with, like, kindergarten children and blue chips. Mm -hmm. It's kind of sweet to just see him hang around with this much smaller human being who's still figuring his shit out. Uh, And the kid does not reach that point until very late in the movie. Like, he says, like, until I complete my wishes, I own you. And I'm going to hold you to that. And, like, you will come to my beck and call. So, yeah, there's definitely, like, a slavery aspect to their relationship. Well, the fact that he's, like, appropriating black culture, too. This kid's, like, rapping throughout the movie and, like... Interesting thing about that. Okay. <laughs> the kid is coded as white in this movie. And his mom is white, and his dad is, like, a white music pirate, which is hilarious. Yeah. Like, music piracy is, like, this, like, dangerous business in this film. Well, he's
2: also an Italian character that's basically in with, like,
1: organized crime. So there's that. But Frank Capra, in real life, the little kid, is half Dominican and half Italian. He's got, so kind of like, a very New York, kind of, like, multicultural background. Okay and on Veronica Mars he plays a hispanic character and like the one of the main points of the show is how this kid and his like group this like motorbike gang kind of are discriminated against by the rich white kids in town so it's <laughs> kind of weird how his career like moved from him being this like white hip hop kid to like this hispanic motorcycle gangster but how how did you feel about the like racial aspects of
3: kazam yeah were
1: you even thinking about that
2: no
3: yeah this this time around so the previous times i've watched this movie that did not enter my consciousness at all but this time i definitely had a moment where i was like wait shaq is a slave and he's (laughs) his kid slave and this is weird But I also at the same time felt like that really contributed to what I found to be the heart of the film was not so much is Max's dad going to do right and like will Mm -hmm. his family life be okay? Because Max's dad is obviously an abuser and I don't believe that he changed just like that. And he was clearly in over his head when he's like, maybe we can go fishing when I'm out of jail. I'm like, really? That's what you're going to take your kid to do in New York City? But I digress. (laughs) What I thought was... The real, like, emotional heart of the film for me was Shaq's character, Kazam, and his development. Like, I felt so excited for him when his rap career was taking off and when he and Max were bonding and then so heartbroken when Max betrayed him and he was Mm -hmm. like, I thought we were friends. Yeah. And then at the end, when we learned a powerful lesson about the transformative power of love and friendship...
1: Uh, and it is very transformative. Like that climax looks like the fountain. Like yeah, yeah. It's like this that. beautiful, like divine transcendence. Jinn. Or... Jin, Jin. That's yeah. yeah, he's just like a giant godlike face that
3: fills love... the whole
1: screen with like
2: warm I light. Love that dude, and I love that message too. He's just saying like it's inside of you. Like everything you want, your dreams are like in your heart. That's such a good message for
1: kids. And I think most kids. And I can even attest to it because I was a kid when I watched this movie. Will latch on to like that wish fulfillment like, fantasy aspect of the movie, more than anything. Oh, it's raining junk Raining candy, to me,
3: is the, like, scene from that movie that has stuck with me ever since my childhood. I remember that, and I was
1: also always really jealous of Max's ceiling, which is, like, this Constellation mural over his bed. Yeah, I always, like, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I want that so bad, Uh, but I never hooked it up, you know? Um, (laughs) I also love the flying French toast scene, too, just because it's so ridiculous, So, in that scene where Shaq makes flying French toast and feeds himself with it, he shows up at Max's house. Do you think Max's mom is, like, very turned on by Shaq? (laughs) She looks at him like he's the most beautiful object she's ever seen in her life. She's like, what is this giant, beautiful thing? Uh, Which, I get that he's a magical being, but it's just very funny. He just radiates that genie energy. Yeah. Yeah. Very funny scene to me. And any scenes where Shaq and this kid are just, sort of like, palling around... Uh, there's like an extended rap scene to a song called We Genies that's really fun. There's concerts with DeBrett, yeah. who's very oh, proud Yeah, that's Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and basically, the least amount of rapping chef does in this movie is in those concert scenes. He mostly holds up this boombox that shoots sparks over the crowd. He just says, I am Kazam, over and over and over <laughs> again. Uh, and that's the stuff you really remember. I just feel like watching it now is if you're going to be at all critical about it, like that's when the racial dynamics start to like kind of creep in and sort of like spoil the fun a little bit. Yeah. Well, just speaking of like batshit crazy moments, like
2: I kind of forgot that he turns the main villain into a basketball and then then dunks dunks him him into into a garbage disposal. (laughs) That scene is not in my memory bank. And I watched it again. I was like, Oh wow. That's really weird. I guested on
1: an episode of uh, jean pod Van Damme. It's my Ooh. friend's Jean-Claude Van Damme podcast. Uh, and there's an episode we did where JCVD teamed up with Dennis Rodman. And
3: what?
1: Dennis Rodman. Are you talking my double team? Double team. I've seen it. I saw it in the theaters. Super fun movie. <laughs> uh, there's a scene where they jump out of an airplane and a parachute forms around them in the shape of a basketball. And saves their lives. And then later in the film, Rodman gets a rebound. And somebody goes, rebound! I was thinking of that during this movie because we have no idea that Kazam has any interest in basketball at all. Like, it's just that your knowledge of Shaq is like a personality... That, like, a joke about free throws or uh, him dunking the villain into a trash chute even means anything to you. Like, it has nothing to do with his character in the film. It has everything to do with, like, Shaq as a real-life personality. Yeah,
3: I didn't even think about that. I just accepted that he would be turning the villain into a basketball. There's that, like,
1: (laughs) meta context. like Well... Here's an interesting thing. This movie came out the same year as Space Jam.
3: Oh. I think
1: they're kind of like of the same cloth. Yeah. Uh, Space Jam, obviously a better funded film. This is a little cheaper. But I think what's interesting about that, and this kind of like goes to show like Shaq as a personality, is that in Space Jam, Michael Jordan plays like the serious straight man to Bugs Bunny's like goofball. And in this movie, Shaq is the goofball Bugs Bunny character. He is like the mischief. I
2: read some quote from him where they're asking me if he like regrets making it or whatever and he was like, "Look, I grew up as a kid wanting to be in a movie and if someone's going to give me 7 million dollars to play a genie in a kids movie, like I'm going to do it." That's pretty much what it felt like. He just like he went with it. He gave it 100%. I really enjoyed it.
1: Okay, I have a Shaq fact question for
2: you. Sure. Okay. I'll see
3: if I can answer. In
1: <laughs> Blue Chips, Shaq wears a giant earring. Is that yeah. a normal thing?
3: I think he did or does have a pierced ear.
1: My question is like, do you think that Kazam was only ever pitched because someone saw him wearing that (laughs) earring and was like, he kind of reminds me of a genie. Let's just roll with that and have him rap. With the earring and the
3: turban. Yeah, I don't know. It'll
1: sell itself.
3: And I'd love to just know more in general about how Shaq came to have this mini film career in the first place. Because one thing that I didn't think I've never thought about before is he filmed all of these while he was like at the height of his NBA Mm -hmm. career. How does that work time wise and with the off season? And it looked like he was doing some of his own stunts in some of these films. Dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. Well.
2: I think Kazam (laughs) was filmed when he was uh, on the Olympic team. Ah. Because I I remember reading, they had to, like, work around his schedule, and he was really only on set for, like, a week or two. But he, like, impressed everyone because he memorized, like, all of his lines. Like, he was on point and, like, well-prepared. So you got to respect Shaq, man. He fit shooting a
1: freaking movie in there while he was training for the Olympics. Well, this kind of goes back to, like, my Power Rangers point is that, like... Shaq is a commercial product at this time, more so than he ever would be in his career again. Like, if you're going to make a few movies off the back of like Shaq being a celebrity, that was the time to strike while the iron was hot. And I think Kazam is the one that actually fulfills like the absurdity of making a Shaq movie. Like, building a whole movie around this like rapping celebrity who's not known for his rap career as quickly as you can to like make as much money as you possibly can. And it actually leading to this like absurd, weirdly artful film, especially when it gets to that transcendent, the fountain conclusion. (laughs) Like it feels like they reached some like sort of weird artistic absurdity kind of by accident, just by chasing this like commercial cash in. Well, I do think with this next movie that we're going to talk about, it's kind of diminishing. Yeah. The bloom was off the rose after that. Uh, the next film is steel from 1997 Which even as a kid, I heard from other children, don't watch that, that's bad.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of my memory too.
1: (laughs) This was a first time watch for me, was it for y'all as well?
3: This is definitely the first time I've seen it in its entirety. I feel like I maybe saw bits and pieces on TV as a kid, but also had been told like, yeah. Steel's not worth your time. <laughs> yeah, same here. I think
2: I caught some on like a random afternoon on TV. But yeah, this was the first time watching it all the way through.
1: Considering how many times I saw Space Jam and like Kazam as a kid. Yeah. To like hear that this was bad and to avoid it and to listen <laughs> to that warning means something. Because Steel is a very bad film. Yeah. This is from a time when superhero movies were still kids stuff outside of, like, maybe the Tim Burton Batman movies. Uh, This is, like, pre-X-Men. We hadn't really gotten to this, like, new superhero boomerang now. Um, Steel is based off of a DC Comics character. It's kind of like a uh, Superman side character. It's not someone who would ever really, like, hold your attention. Except that Quincy Jones became, like, obsessed with the character for some reason and decided to produce this movie. Uh, And he wanted Shaq to play the main character, who is John Henry, Who, in his superhero form, is in this, like, sort of RoboCop outfit of, like, welded-together steel parts with the giant John Henry hammer. This movie cost $16 million to make. It made barely over a million back at the box (laughs) office. It is a huge slog. Starts off as a sort of military story about this, like, super smart scientist. Like, this is the smartest character Shaq's ever been cast as. Uh, He develops military weapons and talks about megavolts a lot, whatever that means, and he finds out after he gets disillusioned with the military and leaves it that his weapons have been sold to street gangs and he decides to become a vigilante in his uncle's junkyard makes his own high-tech suit where him and his disabled former soldier -soldier, co-soldier who he also has the hots for help him fight crime from like a remote location where he smashes things with his hammer and tells one-liners and basically, is another Kazam type hero to children everywhere, except that it's not fun and it's just very boring. <laughs> is that a good rundown of that's like what
2: Steel is? Yeah, that's a very good
3: rundown. Can I say
2: one positive thing though? I do like the fact the like wheelchair yes. character is definitely a highlight because I don't really know of another movie, definitely up until that point, that had like a strong paraplegic character.
1: Mac and me, maybe? <laughs>
2: but right. also, no. who, was a, who was a
3: woman and who was a computer expert. Right. Like, to me, that was a strong point, too.
1: And I found that their eye-fucking was very sweet. Like, they, I did. They I wanted had that, chemistry. Yeah. I wanted
3: that relationship to succeed and was so sad at the end when she, like, does her weird I programmed my wheelchair to stand up and they don't kiss. They're just oh, yeah.
2: like, yeah. yay, no...
3: you can make your wheelchair stand.
2: You, uh, and actually, that's to go back to Blue Chips for a quick second, that's one thing that really upset me with that movie is they never gave any resolution with, like, Nick Nolte and his ex-wife. Like, they have really good chemistry the whole movie, and then the end, you don't really know, like, did they get back together? Did they not?
1: I don't think so. I think Nick Nolte is, like, such a classic 90s de forcee who, like lives in driftwood apartments. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's such a loser. He's basically playing, like, Al Bundy, which is funny because Ed O'Neill's in the movie. Uh, but he's, like, this, like, sort of, like, done with, like, right. real life kind of guy. <laughs>
2: but anyway, similar thing. Like, yeah, I really wanted that closure of just, like, kiss the girl,
1: man. Like, in the movie on a happy note. Well, going back to Blue Chips is an interesting point just because Blue Chips sort of calcifies his, like, college basketball legacy. And kazam sort of capitalizes on his rap game aspirations and steel like what it's just because he's big like why is he in this movie it doesn't make any sense what does Shaq bring to this character that they felt they needed him for the role i can't answer that yeah really (laughs) size size which i mean they make a couple jokes in the movie I, i guess kind of the funniest thing if you're gonna like desperately search for humor in this humorless enterprise is that you have obviously white screenwriters writing for black characters uh which leads to some funny exchanges sometimes yeah Uh, they make fun of cajun food a lot which i thought was something that julia would find amusing i actually (laughs) loved
3: the grandma's character and her concept of Marrying Julia Child French cooking with Southern, yeah, Louisiana cooking. She's
1: making uh, Cajun catfish stuff with crawdaddy mousse. Yeah. <laughs> Which no one here says crawdaddy, but that's no. still kind of funny.
3: Or the hominy souffle. I was like, you know, probably somewhere Susan Spicer has been like working on that <laughs> in her kitchen.
1: <laughs> Other lines um, one gangster says to Steele, I'm going to smoke you like a blunt. Steele's young friend who may be his relative, his brother or something. Ray J. Uh, Ray J. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, He says that his older brother has more time than a clock, indicating that he is in jail, which is a very funny way to say that. And the sort of coup de grace of the film is when Steele first uses his suit and ejects a bad man through the windshield of a car and says... Well, I'll be dipped in shit and rolled in breadcrumbs. Which is a line you have to hear for yourself to believe because it yeah. is so fucking ridiculous. And it's delivered
3: by Richard Roundtree, the former Shaft.
1: Oh, is that who that is? That's
3: Shaft. That's why there's the joke when he's when Shaq finally, or Steel, gets his uh, giant hammer and they're all admiring it and Uncle, Uncle Joe, played mm-hmm. by Richard Roundtree, goes... I really am a fan of the shaft.
1: <laughs> what? I thought that was a joke about the hammer being like sexual. I did not it get was that a at all. Shaft
3: reference. Wow. I
1: didn't know that was Richard Roundtree. That was, that's good.
3: Yeah, so there were some jokes that were kind of call-outs to like these people's personas outside the film because they also kept making jokes about Steel or John Henry being terrible at basketball and never being good at the free throw. Um, so they were trying yeah. to like give us a wink throughout the movie, but it just—he
1: does I, save the day by making a free throw, which is yes. like probably good wish fulfillment for Shaq. <laughs> I also I have
2: to say I hated the Judd Nelson villain in this. He is really hard to
1: watch. He doesn't he sh- make any sense. He's like yeah. selling old military weapons to like an arcade, an arcade
3: right? Yeah, it on the internet. Sense. Yeah.
1: Also, in the ver- <laughs> very
2: beginning, where he like just turns the gun up to like 11 and just kills people. Like there's people watching you standing right there. That doesn't make any sense. So
3: this was my biggest hang up. And I just, maybe it's because I found this movie so unenjoyable, but like throughout the movie I kept asking myself, but why isn't that guy in military jail? The military usually treats things way harsher than our criminal justice system would. And so I would assume that him cranking that weapon up, causing the death of one person or maybe more than one person and the serious like disabling of another person right? would have resulted in some kind of stint in military jail.
1: Maybe he still has ties with the military and he's like selling weapons to make military people rich mm-hmm. and like Shaq is too good to like get wrapped up in their schemes, which is why <laughs> he has to leave the forces. It's not fleshed out in any way. No. Yeah,
3: there were a lot of plot holes in this one that I found myself getting hung up on, and I'm sure there were like as many plot holes in Kazam, but it was enjoyable <laughs> enough that I just didn't think about those.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're along for the ride, so you don't have time to really yeah. think about that. And this one, you have all the time in the world. Yeah, like so also slow. contemplating,
3: like this guy is so clearly a sociopath. Would he have been able to get this high up in the military ranks without someone at some point giving him a personality test? And being like, wow, this you guy's can, off the charts.
2: Yeah, you can tell from the very first scene he's in, like, oh, yeah, that dude's sketchy
1: as hell. Well, what what is Judd Nelson, like, famous for besides The Breakfast Club? That's
3: the only uh, thing I really know that guy from. The Breakfast Club? The Breakfast Club, <laughs> yeah. I
1: don't, I don't know. So, I don't know. It, it seemed like he was, like, the big celebrity get for the movie. So, they give him a lot of, like, mean-mugging time as the villain. But there's really no depth or interesting aspects to that character. He doesn't, doesn't really even make much sense. No. If you're gonna have fun with the movie, you have to look for like details, like the souffle the the uh, sort of grandmother character is making, or the uncle's junkyard has kind of like a Pee Wee's Playhouse set design yeah. vibe to it. But really, it just isn't as bright or as exciting or as fun as Kazam in any possible way that you could look at it. The only other positive
2: thing I can think of about Steel is. I do like that his character, Shaq's character, is, like, a really good guy. Everything he does in the movie, he's, like, the perfect dude. He's just always, like, honest and good, and that's, like, kind of refreshing. Like, he doesn't really have a dark side at all. He's just a genuinely
1: great person. which is That's a
2: little refreshing.
1: Which is very in line with, like, action movies from a little earlier, with, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, those, like, all-American badass characters from, like, Commando or whatever, mm-hmm. they don't have any depth in that way. They're like, that is the good guy. He is good because <laughs> his jaw is so square. That's kind of the character he's playing here. He's just, like, everything that is right and good in the world.
3: I think it made it charming, too, with the grandma character. Clearly she had invested a lot in raising him to be a polite young man.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, here's a question, or a theory, I'm just trying to parse out, like, why this was made. Like, how Shaq's (laughs) career fits into this box. One of the things he is interested in, besides, like, the endorsements and the podcasting and everything else he does, is law enforcement. Which is a weird... And
3: Superman. He has a Superman obsession.
1: He does... Okay, so in this movie there's another Shaq fact check.
3: Yeah, that's a real tattoo.
1: Okay. He shows a Man of Steel (laughs) tattoo on his, like, bicep. Yeah. Um,
3: So if you ever see Shaq's cribs episode (laughs) he has a lot of superman stuff in his house and that is a real tattoo now i don't know if he got the tattoo prior to the movie or if when they asked him to do the movie he was like i'm gonna get this tattoo
1: it looks pretty faded
3: yeah he may have had it for a while he's a he's a big he's really into law enforcement and really into superman
1: I will say the scene where they show the tattoo is one of the bigger laughs I got out of the film. Yeah. Because they play this, like, inspiring hyper-religious gospel music while he's, like, doing steel work along all these, like, sparks in his, like, new working class job after he gets kicked out of the military. (laughs) And there's all these, like, hot ladies in hard hats walking around, like, (laughs) looking him up and down and, like, taking in his, like, whole body and, like, kind of, like, making little faces to themselves. And it's... It's like a really funny scenario just to watch him do that, divorced from the rest of the, the narrative. Um, but just going back a second, he is very interested in law enforcement. And like I think he was like an honorary deputy with the LAPD or something. And is like he's always, every now and then, putting out his feelers to be like the sheriff of a small town somewhere.
3: Yeah, I'm kind of surprised we haven't made a reality show like the Steven Seagal lawman one that we had down here in Louisiana. I would watch the hell out of a... I'd reality much
1: show. rather watch Shaq what be a if, cop if, than oh Steven Well, Shaq seems like a good person. Steven Seagal seems like a monster.
3: And what if, <laughs> what if we had Shaq like, responding to New Orleans stuff, but not the serious stuff. More like, this person's drunk and passed out on the sidewalk. Right. Like, What if you came to and Shaq was standing over you in an <laughs> NOPD uniform?
2: I think you need to contact Shaq, because that seems like a great show. I'd watch it.
3: I will say, um, so ESPN for years now has had these running gag Sports Center commercials where they put their Sports Center anchors and usually a famous athlete in a weird scenario. And the most recent one that I saw uh, was Mike the Tiger, the actual uh, human being in a mascot suit, gets stuck in a tree on LSU's campus. And Shaq shows up in his uh, Miami police uniform <laughs> and gets Mike down out of the tree, throws him over his shoulder, and everyone claps like all the sports <laughs> center <laughs> are standing around. And they're like, you're our hero. You <laughs> saved our cat.
1: Well, okay. It seems like we said that Blue Chips is his best dramatic performance. Yeah. Kazam is his, like, peak Shackness. Like, if you're gonna watch a 90s Shack movie, Kazam is your go to. And Steel is everything we heard it was to be as kids.
3: Yeah, and Steel, like, I was kind of hoping Steel was gonna be so bad it was good, but it's Mm-mm. not. It's just bad.
1: I don't think kids have that, like, so bad it's good radar. Like, to them, uh, don't watch this means I was so bored. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think that's the barometer I still watch movies on. Like, <laughs> I can recommend Kazam as a good movie to me because it's yeah. a fun, ridiculous movie that goes to a really absurd place at the end. And Steel is a movie that I cannot recommend because besides that two second Gifted Shit and Roll the breadcrumbs <laughs> line, I was not entertained in any kind of memorable way. I was like searching for things to laugh at. But you really do have to hear that breadcrumb line. I'd probably listen to that on YouTube like 30 times after watching <laughs> the movie. Well, that's it for the day. Unless y'all have anything else to say about Shaq's legacy. I don't recommend listening to his podcast either. But mostly it's because it, there's like two morning disc jockey type guys who like provide a lot of structure to the show. And he just sort of like chips in yeah. uh, with his like Shaq thoughts as they come to him. Um, <laughs> and if you do want to like check up on anything we're doing you can meet us in a physical space of the new orleans library on november 18th and 19th at the new orleans comics and zines festival nocas 2017 i will be selling hand printed copies of things we write for the website with like extra illustrations handwritten out uh text you're a, ma- a madman. Yeah. You wrote all those it looks like something a serial killer scrawled like <laughs> I love on like it. toilet paper yeah, yeah. And yeah, come see us for Nocas, November 18th and 19th at the library. Selling very cheap, but like tangible versions of like content we produce for the website. And we'll be back to you with another episode in a couple weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye.
0: Bye.